Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. The first line of one of the many literary works of the famous ancient scholar Hippocrates goes like this. Life is short, art long, opportunity fleeting, experience deceptive, judgment difficult. Now that's quite a line. Let me say it again in your hearing. Pause for a moment from what you're doing and pay attention to this little bit of ancient wisdom. Life is short, art long, opportunity fleeting, experience deceptive, judgment difficult. I want to explore some of this wisdom with you for a brief moment today. Let's dissect it by poignant clause. First clause, life is short. No doubt you agree with this bit of wisdom. Ancient or current, life is indeed short. When you get at my age, the years seem to speed by at an ever-increasing rate. The Bible advises us that it is appointed unto men once to die. After that, there's judgment. If life is so short, we better do now what we want to do, make the necessary preparation for eternity. Now, tomorrow may be too late. The next phrase is art long. Life is short, but art is long. To me, the message is that beauty is everlasting, permanent. While life is short, we can enjoy the beautiful creativity expressed in the various forms of artistic endeavor, even in that short time we live. So smell the roses now while you're able. But then Hippocrates says that opportunity is fleeting. Like our life, it is only a bit of smoke. It's there a brief moment, then it's gone. Opportunity only strikes once, it's been said. Grab it while you can. Life is short, art long, opportunity is fleeting, then Hippocrates says experience is deceptive. I struggle with this one a bit. Sometimes we say experience is the best teacher, and I agree with that. But perhaps Hippocrates meant that experience with the full scope of life, when that experience is focused and centered on the limited exposure that we have of our own experiences, without the benefit of the knowledge and experiences of others, that limited experience can be deceptive. Like the three blind men describing the elephant, each one formed the image of what the elephant looked like as part that they could touch. Without the benefit of seeing the entire animal at one time, their picture and thus their knowledge was limited and faulty. Finally, Hippocrates says judgment is difficult. Again, trying to make a judgment call having only limited knowledge of the subject matter is very difficult, very likely to be faulty or even wrong. On the other hand, however, if it is we who are being judged, then that can be the most difficult of all. We believers will all stand before the judgment seat, before the Lord, one day, where we will give an account. For many, if not most, that will indeed be a difficult judgment. Knowing this, the Bible says, what kind of people ought we to be?
pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for families. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing and prosperity. And we pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. When all the while he hears he's spoken need, yet loves us way too much to give us lesser things. Cause what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your The rain, the storms, the heart. 
hardest nights are your mercies in disguise. There's mercies in disguise. And now with this message for today, here is Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want to talk to you about the issue of the eternal security of the true believer in Christ. In other words, I want to answer the question, can a true believer in Christ lose his or her salvation? It is sometimes referred to in, the, in a original manner as the one saved, always saved doctrine. There's one chapter in the Bible that deals with this issue quite extensively, that if properly understood as a result of an accurate exegesis or handling of the Word of God, I believe will settle the matter once for all. I speak of Paul's letter to the Romans, and specifically chapter 8. And so, if all possible, please open your Bible to this chapter as we do our brief exposition today. This chapter begins with the glorious truth of no condemnation, and climaxes or ends with the wonderful truth of no separation for those who, because of God's love for them, have been placed in Christ, a position they enjoy because of their faith alone in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and as Lord. Please listen as I read then from the Word of God. First verse 1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Now down to verses 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. The Apostle Paul laid the groundwork for this extended treatise on the believer's eternal security in Christ in the preceding seven chapters of the book of Romans. In this chapter, he moved from showing man's condemnation before God because of its association with Adam in chapters 1 through 3, to showing how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the last Adam, by his death on the cross for sinners, reversed all the effects of the first Adam upon the human race, and how that by faith alone in Christ and his finished work on the cross alone, a sinner can be justified, declared absolutely right in the sight of God. He did this in chapters 4 and 5. Then, in chapters 6 and 7, the Apostle shows that because the believer actually shares in and is identified with the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is forever free from the power of sin and the old life. In a word, the believer is sanctified or set apart in Christ for the glory of God eternally. Now, in this magnificent chapter, chapter 8 of the book of Romans, the Apostle brings it all together to show that the believer, because of his position in Christ through faith in him, 
are eternally safe and secure in Him. The Apostle gives at least seven different reasons for this secure status. First, in verses 1 through 4, Paul says, We are eternally secure in Christ because of this new position. There is no condemnation because believers in Christ are free from the law of sin and death. Second, in verses 5 through 13, he says, We are eternally secured because we have a new life, a life to the Spirit. Third, in verses 14 through 17, Paul says, We are secured because we have a new relationship we are with God. We are now the sons of God. Fourth, he says in verses 18 through 25, that we have a new hope, a hope of glory. And then fifth, in verses 26 to 27, Paul says we are eternally secured because we have a new helper, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. Then six in verses 28 to 30, Paul says we are secured in Christ because we have a new knowledge, and that knowledge is the truth that all things work together for our good and God's glory. And finally, seventh, in verses 31 to 39, the Apostle Paul says, We are secured in Christ because we have a new assurance, and that is that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Today now, due to the constraints of time of this message, we will look only at the last two reasons, where God states very clearly His eternal purpose for the believer in Christ. First, listen to his statement of purpose as given in verse 28. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice all of the words in this wonderful verse. First, notice the certainty. We know, not hope or guess, what we can know of our eternal security. Note also the comprehensiveness of this knowledge. All things, not some, few, or even most, but all things work together. Note also the controller behind all of this working. The text says, God works. Not man, or even the church, but God, who is the master controller of our salvation. He planned it, and he will bring it to its final conclusion. Notice also the goal mentioned in this verse. It is the good for all those who have a special relationship with and toward God. Now, who are these individuals? Who are the subjects? The text is very clear. It is those who love Him. This speaks of a special love relationship and is only truly manifested by those who the text says who have been called. That's God's method for providing our eternal security. We have been called. That's why he could go on and say that our eternal salvation is according to his purpose. It's God's purpose, not man's purpose or the church purpose, but God's purpose. Paul then outlines the steps in achieving this master plan, all set out by God in verses 28 to 30. Listen to what he says as I read these glorious verses. Romans chapter 28, beginning at verse 29 now. Quote, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. End of quote. Notice the steps here. First, step one, God foreknew us. 
Now, this word has the idea of knowing in advance with favor or with approval or love. The emphasis is on a personal, loving knowledge of someone as the basis for establishing a relationship with them. It has nothing to do with knowing what those persons would do or would not do. That was not the basis for God's action of foreknowing His people. No, foreknowledge simply states that God chose certain people whom He loved as the objects of His divine purpose. It has nothing to do with what we do, but with what He does. A closely related word to this is election. God chose us, my friends, because He chose to choose us. End of story. Not because of what we've done, but because of His divine and sovereign choice. Step two, God predestined those whom He foreknew to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's where we headed as believers, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Notice, Paul states the end purpose before he cites the third step in the process. Predestination has to do with the process of events, whereby foreknowledge and election has to do with people. In other words, people are predestined to do or experience certain events as planned out beforehand or predestined by God. Step three, God then called those he predestined. This is what theologians call an effective call. In other words, the call accomplishes what God intends. It is not some are called, but few are chosen. Not in this context. But in this context of the purpose of God, all who are chosen are called. The choosing comes first. The calling affects that choosing. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 makes this quite clear. I encourage you to look it up. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 2. But then step 4. God justifies those whom he called. That is, he declared that those who were foreknown, predestined, and called were declared by him to be free from any and every cause that would hinder communion and fellowship with God on an eternal basis. Notice now, the final end purpose of the plan. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Each of these actions by God is foreknowing, is predestining, is calling, is justifying, and is glorifying are in what is called eros tense in the Greek. This means that each of the events are seen as have already taken place. In other words, all of these events are complete and therefore certain and absolute and cannot be undone. In other words, as far as God is concerned, every person he has foreknown, predestined, called, and justified have also already been glorified. In God's sight, my friends, we are already like Christ if we have placed our faith alone in Him alone as our Savior. This is so absolute that Paul is motivated to ask several questions, most of which are really rhetorical in nature. Just to ask them, in other words, is to answer them. Verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? Meaning, can there possibly be another response to it? Of course not. Or we could say, who would dare to question the actions of God? text says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, is there anyone who would be so foolish to stand against God, the creator of the universe? Of course not. 
Besides, he is the judge. If he is on your side, we've got it made, as we say, in the shade. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What a magnificent verse. This means if God did what was the most difficult thing for him to do, to give his son up as a sacrifice for our sin, will he fail in doing the lesser thing of keeping us eternally secure on the basis of that sacrifice? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave his son to die for us, certainly he is able to keep us. Verse 32, Who will dare to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer, of course, is no one in his right mind. It is God who justifies. And once the acquitter acquits, the acquittee is acquitted. Did you get that? Once the acquitter acquits, the acquittee is acquitted. Verse 34. Who is he that condemns? Meaning, who can condemn those whom God through Christ Jesus has released or justified? The answer is clear. No one. Notice the answer. It is Christ Jesus who died. More than that, he was raised to life. And he is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. End of quote. In other words, the victor, Jesus Christ, now sits triumphantly as our defender against the false accusations of the evil one. The very fact, my friends, that Jesus sits at God's right hand shows that God has accepted his work on Calvary. It is finished. The price has been paid and we are set free from sin and all of its consequences forever. Notice carefully, the death, resurrection, glorification, and present high priestly ministry in heaven are all guarantees of the security of the believer, the eternal security of the believer. For one who has been saved to be lost again would mean that every aspect of the past and present ministry of each member of the triune God would have to be made of none effect, be overthrown. And that is just simply impossible. Verse 35, Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice, Separation from God is the issue, and the love of Christ that motivated him to put in place the plan of salvation in the first place is the test. If that can be broken, then separation can take place, and his entire redemptive work could be overturned. But the question is, is such a thing possible? Can it actually happen? Notice the text now, reading from the New Living Translation. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, separate us. Verse 36, as it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all creation to be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, the Father's love is completely and totally poured out toward and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, who in turn poured out that love for those who trust Him as Savior and as Lord. And at the same time, we are in the double grip of both the Father and the Son's hand. So we are engulfed in the double love 
under double security. Yes, my believing brother and sister, once we become a true child of the triune God through faith alone in Christ alone, we are eternally secured in Him through the work of the entire Trinity on our behalf. For us to be able to lose such a salvation would mean that the entire work on our behalf of the Father, Son, and Spirit will have to be overthrown and regarded as useless and effective. But my friends, that is impossible. Hallelujah, it is impossible, I say. Their work stands now and will stand forever. Our salvation and our eternal security in the triune God is eternally secured. As always, this is Senior Pastor Meredith Alan Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. The great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground and not toiling will be happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again, I am listening every listening moment, for the mighty trumpet sound, what a time we'll have together, when the saints shall leave the ground, and our toiling will be in a moment Jesus Christ could come again